So welcome to the Law in Sport podcast with me, Sean Cottrell, the founder and CEO of Law in Sport. We're here at the Grange Hotel in St Paul's and I've had the pleasure of attending the Sport Resolution Annual Conference in which they've had a number of panels. One of the people who are speaking today, and as it turns out, also um, one of the main sponsors for the conference, was Winston Straw. But the gentleman who I'm sitting opposite today and our special guest for the podcast is Peter Crowther. And we just had a brilliant conversation. I hope we can get into... I paused the conversation off air so we can get into to some of the, the, the topics. But he is Winston Straw's managing partner for London and Brussels office. And I believe not only do you do sports work, but you particularly got a practice in competition law, which is a growing area of sports. That's quite, quite yeah. uh, fortuitous, I guess. Yes, <laughs> yes some, some may say so. Could, uh, <laughs> I, I could claim credit for strategic thinking, but uh, we'll stick with fortuitous. I'm glad to help. So... Um, Firstly, I thought, before we get into some of the stuff that we were coming into, which was some of the dynamics of, of let's say, unsavoury characters operating in any sector, which I think is very relevant for sport at the moment, um, what's your involvement with today's conference? I know you're on one of the panels, but why did you support what Sport Resolution are doing in particular? Um, we work with them as an organisation, and those people were probably familiar with them. They're a dispute resolution centre in London, not-for-profit, and they put on a great event. There was a good and a great sports law here and some great discussions. But you know, what was your why did you decide to support them and why were you speaking today? So um, the, the firm itself has, has been practicing all kinds of very high-profile sports uh, law for you know a long time, uh, mainly in the United States. And we've been looking to expand our practice outside the United States for you know the past few years. And uh, obviously, you have to do that carefully and make sure that you partner with the right organisations. And so. Um, we looked um, at, the, at the market. We started to, to work in the sector, representing you know specific organisations and individuals. And uh, as you get to know uh, the business better, uh, you get to know who the really reputable organisations are. Uh, and Sport Resolution stuck out as, as being you know a destination place for you know really high quality uh, resolution. Uh, of disputes and so you know for us as a dispute practice predominantly uh, in the sports arena um, we we were very proud to associate ourselves for the second year now um, the sports with the sports resolution people for their their conference which I have to say was you know even better attended this year than it was last year so you know they're, they're obviously doing a great job so we're very no, happy are, yeah. with that no no good great bunch of people just in, in terms of those who don't know but I'm sure those who work with them they're a great bunch and they put in a great event and um, so I don't want to overpraise them in terms of people who are not getting paid for any of this but right. I mean quite, quite sincerely yeah. like we work with them a good bunch of people and uh, you know they care about the topics and you know they believe in sort of which I'm really pleased about was a diverse group of people in the room which I think is one of the big uh, and important areas of, of sports law so you were on the second panel today and I've got the agenda in front of me so I'm desperately trying to to find <laughs> yeah. which is actually a topic that's quite close to my heart so, yeah, so, we, so, so the subject of the second panel was integrity and the question posed for the panel was, is integrity a hopeless ideal uh, in sport? Which is, I think, a perfectly fair question these days, uh, given what we've seen emerging almost on a daily basis in terms of corruption, uh, you know, match fixing, um, in terms of doping, you know, just to name but three uh, of the big challenges that are clearly facing this, every sport. Um, this isn't just athletics, it's not just football. Uh, it's clearly, we've just recently had tennis uh, the ITF report. Um, so so this, th these are pervasive issues. 
Um, and the, the, the job of the panel was to see whether, in fact, um, we, we have to accept the status quo or whether there, there are ways forward. And, so and we the had conclusion a was, in an well, initial, because um, I want to get into some of the stuff we talked about, which I think is more, I think the stuff that you do outside of sport, for me, and I say this to people all the time who work in sports law, is sometimes the more interesting and informative in terms of day-to-day practices and also how we set up regulations and, and, and structures in place. So, first of all, I'll let you answer my first question, which was, what was the conclusion of the panel? Well, well my conclusion was very simple. I am profoundly optimistic um, about the chances to yeah, clean up all aspects of sport uh, and to move forward in an environment uh, in which people feel like they can trust the uncertainty of the outcome, uh, feel that the, the competition is fair, that the playing field is level, uh, and that if you uh, if you consider that to be uh, an idea that is that is not uh, reachable, then you are sadly mistaken. Because in many other industries, we've also seen profound change as a result of problems. So we just need to learn from those industries. Uh, we need to uh, be honest with the failings that have taken place um, and set our direction, which is clear, and then we just simply get on with it. And I'll pull you up on one, one point, and I take issue with it all the time, which is people refer to certain terms such as fair play and level playing field. Can you define what you mean by that? Because I think sometimes people think that um, level playing field means that everyone is equal. I don't necessarily think that's an achievable objective or realistic in the world that we're in, in the sense of we want to make it as fair as possible. Sure. So, so this, this is very simple. If we were all equal... Which is okay, good for me, so thank you. Right? <laughs> if, if, if we were all equal, there would be no point in having the competition. It's the very fact that we have different qualities. You know, I may be slightly heavier, you know, slightly taller. You, you know, I may come in a certain weight range, but I've got a longer reach or I've got, you, you know, there was individual physiological qualities that I have and physical qualities that are just slightly different. I will be coming off a stronger training record or maybe a weaker training record. I'm recovering from an injury. There, there are uncertainties that go to the question of the outcome. Uh, and if we take that uncertainty away, then there's no point in having the competition. Because if we're all equal, then we all finish the race at the same time. So uh, I think if we, uh, if we start from the premise that everybody should be equal, we will have the same outcome, which is, um, which is no good for sports. I agree with that. No, thank you very much. Yeah. And so, so for background, you were telling me earlier that um, in a previous guise, before you, you joined Winston Straw, um, your sports team had acted on uh, a, a variety of different cases which actually involved some of these issues. Would you like to talk about that in terms of just briefly, and then we can get into the, the follow-on question that we had off, off air that I wanted to bring on there. Sure. Um, so, so we have, uh, as a group, being involved with um, some uh, you know, high-profile representations uh, of athletes in particular, uh, where we have felt that they were being unfairly excluded from major international tournaments, uh, and we've taken on those cases, and I'm very happy to say we've successfully uh, you know, caused the, the IAAF in, in both circumstances that I'm thinking of to back down. Uh, we, we've reached settlements um, that have allowed those athletes that we believe you know, should have participated in, in, on the terms that they were sort of naturally you know, ordained to, uh, to do so, 
and uh, you know th those were we, so th those were for us yeah, major victories, not in a self-congratulatory sense, but for the integrity uh, of sport and the ability to participate uh, as a human uh, in in opportunities that uh, naturally you're able to do so. Brilliant. Uh, so thanks for that. I think people could probably read between the lines between what those cases were, <laughs> but the. Um, so before we uh, got online, we were just having a really interesting discussion. I cut, I cut it off because I always do this. I always get involved in really meaningful discussions before the podcast, then get onto the podcast, and we still have meaningful discussions, but sometimes we don't talk about some of the issues that I've had the privilege of being exposed to prior to that. So we were talking about people having a binary view of bad actors. And the, how that came about was that we were talking about whether or not we were basically saying that the background to this was that we were saying that you know my belief is that there's the majority of people are good people who act in sport even though i'm sure many of the listeners of the podcast will sense my frustration at times i feel we can improve the systems and we can improve what we do that doesn't mean that i don't believe that there are the majority of people who work in most sectors around the world for that matter are good people trying to do good things and even out of the people who are bad actors and this is the point we were getting to is um I don't necessarily think that uh, all of those people or people who intentionally mean bad, they're, taking it, they're behaving in a way in which to them may seem logical, but to other people may be you know, criminal or to other, but they're basically exploiting certain environments. An example I use was, for example, people who, are, who don't have maybe come up brought up in environments where there's not many economic opportunities and therefore one of their opportunities may be to engage in criminal activity in which they perceive they're removed from harming an individual. They're one, one step removed, whether it's... Um, you know, trafficking or helping participate in trafficking certain substances or stolen goods or something like that, but they believe that there's some or involved in some fraud or act fraud activity where there's a big bank or big organisation who are um, you know able to use their insurance policies to refund themselves, but there's no actual harm caused. So, but you had a particular view on this, and you were in the middle of describing it, and I thought I wanted to get this on air because I thought it was fascinating. So, from your background, your broader background in competition law. How are you going to describe, in your experience, particularly dealing with white-collar stuff and other things like that, what your view is? Mm. So if you want to reduce it to a, a very simplistic level, you can say there are two kinds of people, okay? There are people who just want to do the right thing. They may make a mistake, but they just want to know what the rules are. They just want to follow the rules, and they just want to do their job, whatever their job is. And if they make a mistake, they want to learn from that. They want to move on. Again, just doing their job. You also have the people who, frankly, it doesn't matter how many compliance sessions they attend, how much training they, they say they've been to, how many forms they sign to say they understand the, the process, etc. They are going to cheat. Uh, and cheating will take the, the form of you know, many different kinds of conduct, not just in a sports context, you know, doping or... Um, you know, match fixing or some some other kind of sports context. But Would you say like in cheating push boundaries as well though? So in their mind they might go, I'm not actually cheating, they're just pushing the boundaries to limit because there must be people who are, are still conformist but they are, to, as you were saying see, earlier, I, you said... I, you see, said I don't that, see those, uh, I don't see those as cheats, okay? So I make a clear distinction between people who say, these are the rules, okay? So let's take, let's take for example the distinction between performance allowing drugs and performance enhancing drugs okay if i've got a performance allowing drug that you know that, that 
the, the water codes doesn't say anything about it. it. It's totally fine. If I decide to inject it, ingest it however I want to do it, take it as a nutritional supplement, it's going to allow me to perform better. The law does not prohibit that. If it's found, if it's not even tested, I can do that, okay? So, so those substances are, are totally fine. The substances which are not fine and to which strict liability is attached mm -hmm. are the um, the substances the where methods, if yeah. they're on the list, the prohibited list, if, if they're present for whatever reason, you are, um, that's it, okay? Mm. That's what, so I, I make a binary distinction in this sense between the, the cheats and the non-cheats, just for the sake of setting the analysis, right, okay? okay yeah. So for the, for the sake of setting the analysis, you've got the good guys and the bad guys. Of course, the, the reality is that uh, people exist much more on a spectrum. Uh, and what you really have to do is you have to create an environment that makes it extraordinarily difficult for the cheats to survive, to ensure that those people who are tempted have a powerful motivation not to be tempted, uh, and to ensure that those people who make good, honest mistakes are, shall we say, dealt with in a proportionate uh, way. Mm. Uh, and, and so it, that doesn't include, for example, you know, trial by media and, and, yeah. and things like that. So, so how do you, what, what kind of a system are, are you... That's know, my next question, that was going to be my question, yeah, thank you. <laughs> right, so um, I, I'm not going to ask my questions. <laughs> so can what sort of system would you need? <laughs> so, so, so the system that you might conceive of, for example, which has worked incredibly effectively uh, outside the sports context, is to have uh, some kind of immunity program, okay, for, for those people who, you know, come and, you know, uh, they blow the whistle effectively, uh, whether it's on their suppliers, it's on their competitors, yeah. on you know people that they know or they suspect. Uh, and so, what the, the reason that that's very important is because if we take the people that we're really trying to go after here, which are the people who deliberately set out to defraud the mm. system, broadly described, what you really want to do is because these are essentially secret arrangements. These are you know arrangements that w whether it's doping privately or whether it's you know match fixing these are you know sy systems and I want to put, i'll keep going on the back of back of this i think integrity issue sure it doesn't get caught up enough is a safeguarding on the uh, child abuse stuff again they are secret though there yeah. are secret relationships that are taking yeah. place and, and that, there, 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 yeah. you know at every level there, there are people who set out to cover their tracks yeah whether it's to fix prices or whether it's to you know dope or whatever yeah. so so what you really have to do is create powerful incentives for that secrecy to be de destabilized mm. And one of the things that I think we've learned from the competition law world is that if you have an immunity program that rewards the first person who goes in with complete immunity from civil and criminal prosecution in those jurisdictions where they're the first to report, that is a very powerful motivator. And so these days, for example, you know, in, the, in the cartel uh, world, over 90% of new cases start with a whistleblower. Yeah. You know, when you think about that, they, they don't start by you know, accidental discoveries of a regulator yeah. or you know, inadvertent people leaving things on a, on a train. Mm. Or, you know, I mean, they, they don't start by accident. They start because of the you know, self-interest of those people who say, right, we want to do something mm. about the situation and we're going to go and tell you know, everybody, we're going to cooperate, and in return for that, will get immunity. That means that you have to basically uh, go and, and, and fess on your competitors or but, your... But suppliers. in that environment, you have a different... Say, say, for example, to, to oppose the sport, you have a more sophisticated uh, regulatory structure in some ways in the sense that 
Um, you've already got heavy regulatory burdens in place. You've, already, you've got institutions that have got more financial clout, uh, more protections generally than in sport, in terms of protecting individuals or protect those whistleblowers. But um, would you? But do you, would you agree that for me, a lot of the narrative around whistleblowing in sport has, in some ways, become in the sensationalist media, let's say, or at least with the media take it, it's become too simplistic in the sense that whistleblowing is a requirement of a failure of governance or regulatory structure in the sense of it's a safeguard that's in place to make sure that if there are those bad actors, you can come through, but it shouldn't be replaced. It's not a replacement for good regulatory and good communication he, and good engagement. He's the two sides of the same coin. Yeah. Okay, because remember, what, what, I'm, what I'm talking about is the very simple two systems existing yeah. side by side. You've got the good guys and you've got the bad guys, okay? So we know how to deal with the good guys, okay? The good guys are going to do the right thing because they're going to follow mm. the rules. Occasionally they'll make mistakes and they will learn from those mistakes mm. and we're all back on track. Great, okay? Mm. The bad guys are going to do the bad things. Okay? But saying that, though, so, but there are good guys who get labelled as bad guys. As example, doping. As a prime example, right, if you're a doper, one of the nuances that I think is often missed in the narrative in the media is that, right, if you if you get a speeding fine, right, people go, oh, you got a speeding fine, you're not forever more criminal. But for some reason in doping, if you've failed a test, if you've had a whereabouts failure requirement or other, and you're therefore labelled as a doper, you're forever more a doper. Right, um, and so, so therefore you automatically fall in the category of bad guy, that, right, regardless of what happens. Um, well, and that is a narrative that plays out. Yeah, leaving aside the trial by media, which is a separate problem, if you look at the, the, the system, in fact, it's not true to say that you're always a doper. Uh, and the reason I say that is because, you know, for the first-time offence, so to speak, you, you will have a, normally a four-year that may get reduced. You, you yeah, know, but then the reality and, and is, though, about how you're treated by people in the sector, in well, the sport, in right. the media, in the coverage is this uh, person is always caveated being a... They filled a test, formally, they don't formally, form a doper. Right. But so, so my, my view on that situation is, is, is pretty clear. Um, uh, unless there are clear circumstances in which you, know, you um, can explain the presence of a prohibited substance in your body, what you signed up to when you agreed to participate, you joined the Olympic pathway, you know, this is what you signed up to. Okay. But you isn't it, to clean but but now there are defences available. Yeah. For example, you know, inadvertent, uh, you know, consumption of contaminated meat products, or mm. you, you know, we, we've seen cases where um, it is clear on the face. We've had um, sabotage cases, for example, where people have been, you know, sabotaged, yeah, uh, and you know, those. Um, it, it is wrong that those cases are not given sufficient prominence, but that doesn't question of itself whether you need whether, whether that is the so right could, regulatory so system. i presume you work in the let's say for example um, uh, if you give me an example one of the sectors that you work in one of the big heavily regulated sectors that you work in oh um well so we work in financial services we oh, work perfect. in so uh, tech consumer excellent. energy so 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 within those in those services though um in those in those in those sectors um uh, one of the the requirements I know that when I used to work for law firms in particular, right? When you went through your induction process, there was a heavy induction. Whether you liked it or not, you're going through a two-day induction process, in which they make you sit through numerous videos, read numerous documents, have discussions, and there's a heavy induction process, which, by its very nature, being sport, being as a sort of so this evolutionary market that is like, yeah, 
when they come from out, out of the amateur era into the professional era recently. Uh, would you say that you liken the induction process in, uh, in your experience to sport to the same standard that you'd expect in, the, say, financial services? So can we hold athletes to the... You know, if we talk about engagement and rights and there's a whole debate about employment rights in Africa, like, it's a much more... In some ways, it's a, even though it's a smaller market, much smaller market, it's a more complex environment in the sense of this... So, so I'm sorry, but I disagree. <laughs> Go for it, I love it. So, so no, the, reason, the reason I disagree is because I think if we're talking about situations where people have, you know, contravened, uh, you know, the, either the WADA code or you know, clear rules, mm. um, then... Are they clear? That's the question I'd ask. So, then, so, so, so okay, for example, so the WADA code. So, say for example, with athlete engagement, if you give me 100 athletes, give me 100 of the best educated athletes around the world, give me five of them that can properly articulate what is in the WADA code. Because I work with anti-doping lawyers all around the world, including yeah. I've been to friends with... So, so that's not the relevant question. Well, yeah. Okay? Because you, you this know, is why you're you a lawyer, know, I'm not. You, 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 know, <laughs> you know the answer to that question, okay? Yeah. That's not the relevant question. The relevant question is... Um, is it objectively clear that an athlete that consumed that product okay, should have known or would have known that it was not to be consumed? Now, that is not the same as saying, do they know what's on the prohibited list? Because what we're talking about are products that are not freely available. Okay? These are not products that you can somehow accidentally consume with your muesli for breakfast. Well, that's, that's on the presumption. So here's the interesting, though. Here's an interesting dynamic. In the, I'm not sure of how, how articulate this has been in a public forum. In a private forum, there are scientists, who I won't disclose their individual names, who have been you know, at wider accredited labs who said the specificity, and there was actually a case in America in horse racing on this issue, where they're saying the level of sensitivity is now so good that it's changed the dynamic in the sense of principle strict liability has changed because the mm. balance is such that literally it could come from anywhere. There are cases where people have been contaminated, had contaminated tap water. Totally right. And so, so I think I, I enjoy your approach. Uh, I like your approach in the sense of, cause I think if we continue this discussion, it'd probably gone for hours, but mm. I think we can get to the right conclusion by asking the right questions, as yeah. you were saying. And yeah. so, but how do, so how do you, in this current regulatory environment, or let's just say in financial services, which I think is a great one to, to, to pick on, where they have failures in their system despite the huge sums of money they spend on compliance, as an example, because mm. they don't want to. Banks, they want to be paying multi-million pounds, hundreds of millions of pounds sure. of fines, right? They, they actively try sure. against it, mm. yet they still fall foul of that mm. because of, you're probably in a better human place. Nature. To, human nature, right? Like, so... Comparatively, what would do you, when you look at, say, for example, the WADA code, since we talked about it, but other regulatory, you know, and they are unusual, I think, in terms of their, their, their international, varying degrees of compliance, but international compliance and consensus that someone should do something about it is quite unusual, mm. I think. Um, how do you think that compares to something like the financial services industry? Is it good, bad? Well, let me, let me put it this way. If you compare the amount of investment that goes into compliance post-financial crisis in the financial services industry, I mean, it just doesn't compare to pre-financial crisis. So, you know, the, number of, the, the physical number of people involved in compliance in mm. financial services has rocketed, right. okay? Uh, and, and resources have been absolutely poured into ensuring that, that transgressions can really only take place for those people who deliberately set out to defraud the system, okay? Uh, and so, 
So, so what do you do in that situation? Mm. You have to try and, you, you know, create powerful motivations for mm. those people to, to say, okay, I did a bad thing, but I'm going to go and tell because this is in my interest. Mm. And so if you look at uh, the United States, which is, you know, very um, uh, easy to criticize in terms of certain aspects of their, you know, legal system, shall we say. Um, but one thing they've got, I think, really very straight is making... Um, so-called corporate crime or you know sports yeah. crime make it make it personal okay so sure the companies you know get fined and that's what you see mm. but what also happens is that the individuals go to jail mm. so and if, and if you look at who's in jail for you know white collar crimes in the United States today there's about a third of those people currently in jail are non-US nationals okay mm. And what that means is that they've engaged in conduct outside the United States or within the United mm. States that has an effect on United States commerce mm. or breaches United States law. And guess what? That changes behavior. Yeah. That I really agree. changes behavior. There's, an issue, don't there's, a, there's a question over proportionality. By I, I take your point, but I think, yeah, as long as it's proportionate in the sense of, like, you know, because some people can find themselves in these systems and in theory, it's more complicated. I, I, I can think of numerous examples of uh, certain individuals who have fallen foul of that, and not to say they didn't do something wrong, but they've, they've got the heavy weight of the law, mm -hmm. and I don't think it was necessarily intended that they were meant to be party to it, but, yeah. but nevertheless, they replied to it. I agree with everything you just said. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> I feel, oh, oh, for the I'll end the podcast time, there. For, for, the, for, the, for the first time today, I think. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so... From listening to what you said, something you know, I do come from this from a slightly pointy perspective, because of of I deal with the sort of the, one of the broader aspects of sport, and I try and look and think how can we improve things, and I like to think we contribute to that. I don't think there's one singular answer, to, mm. um, but I like to, to talk to people like yourself and draw on conclusions mm. and be challenged in my, in particularly in my views, but also in other people's views, because I think that's how we uh, I think identify clearer paths of, to move forward. So. On that basis then, say the characteristics that you're talking about in terms of people abusing the system, one of the things I've come on late, and I apologise for people listening if they've heard me repeat this time and time again, is that I feel that anti-doping and match fixing is an example of failures of safeguarding, often. So you've got some bad actors who really want to do it, but other people are coerced because of the systems they're allowed to be exploited, whether it's the youngsters, you know, minors, they say officially minors under 18 and unders, and then over like people who are, let's say, exposed. And Kate Galavan QC, I was speaking to earlier about this. I don't think she wanted me saying this. We're talking about it in a sort of more broader sense, saying let's forget the legal terminology. So let's just say people who are um, under influence of other people. And I thought it was a very great point. So thanks, Kate, <laughs> uh, for, for enlightening me in that, in that regard. But from, from your other industries that you're working then, um, would you think then, if you were going to recommend, let's say, so imagine you're coming to sport afresh. You haven't got any of the relationships you've got at the moment, so we're you know, right. removing any conflicts you potentially yeah. have. You come into it and going, right, well, I want you to invest in a system that's going to protect um, individuals and, and, and create environments in which it's difficult for these bad actors to operate within. Mm. Would you be looking, where would you start within that system? Bear in mind what I said about you know, safeguarding a broader sense of both like sexual abuse, mental abuse, physical abuse of, of all ages, and also the anti-doping and all these other conducts you don't want. How would you devise that system? How would you go about recommending that you look at that system given your knowledge of tech and finance and all these other areas? Sure. Um, 
first of all, you need some money. Uh, and that's a critical failing about sport, yeah, which is just systematically and spectacularly underinvested. And uh, until underinvested in the right areas. Uh, yes. Yeah, yeah. Oh, for sure. Uh, until you have that, you are not going to make progress. Yeah, the, the, the resource that, for example, even WADA has, which has a phenomenal reputation for you know, being uh, you know, a body of the utmost integrity and, and mm. pursuing the, the right cases and using resources, to, not without criticism, everybody's mm. free to criticize and you know, that, that's all, but I think it's uh, you know, frankly an extraordinary achievement what mm. they've managed to, uh, to, to, to do over a period in which they have just 30 million yeah. by way of a budget and so so first of all you need money okay and second you need to be very clear in your direction uh, and to separate out the function of um, regulation with, with the function of commercialization uh, and with the function of shall we say organization um, if you look for lessons from other industries you you'll see that for example in the United Kingdom we have a an off-gem, off-what, yep. off-com. We don't have an off-sport, mm. okay? Why not? Well, that's a perfectly fair question. Um, well, funny enough, um, uh, Jack Anderson, for example, as Jack Anderson put lo has been lobbying and mentioned the duty of care review was about having an ombudsman, mm. partly for that reason. Um, well, an ombudsman uh, is sort of, uh, you know, yeah. would be a nice way to sort of move along in that right direction. Mm. But there's a reason why... Um, Regulators within government bodies have failed. We, we, and, and the reason is that ultimately you have to separate out that control that takes place um, directly, indirectly, on a human level, on other levels, that the, if you're all under the same roof, if you're all physically working in the same building, uh, and if you have a responsibility to hunt down and, you know, and really prosecute, you, know, you are not going to do that aggressively. You need you need the, the structural separation, yeah. um, and first of all, you need that structural separation. Then you need to staff that body with the right people. So don't ask you know public lawyers to start thinking that they can do litigation. Don't ask your technician to start thinking that they can run a disclosure exercise. Because they you may do. be able to, but the chances are they can't. Like but in but the sense the of, is, you might be lucky and get a randomised you know, intelligent but, individual. But, but or the chances or are you'll get it wrong. Yeah. Uh, and the trouble is that very often you, you will be facing a sophisticated legal you know, team on the other side. Yeah, very good uh, and, and you are going to last 30 seconds. Yeah, yeah. You know, and you're, you're done. Yeah, yeah. And so, so, so you need to have the resource. And you need to gain the respect of the community that, that in fact you are pursuing the right things. Mm. And that doesn't mean, by the way, just the you know the high-profile stuff. Mm. It, it means actually taking you know the sport as a whole and and going after the things which you know ultimately set the tone and set the culture for the future. So we're, we're talking about the things that you know may not be you know of interest to the police. Or you know go yeah. back to some of the things that. You know, you, you, where the police say, "Oh, well, you know, we don't have the resource to do this," which is a you, common you know, discussion nowadays. Right, exactly. And, and in measures. fairness, when we when we think about the limited resource available to the CPS and available to the police, you know, is it is it proportionate in the interest of society that they devote more cases, for example, to doping than to rape cases or violent crime Absolutely. cases? You know, I think you can see that. Yeah. Um, but. But, but there has to be, if you look at the role of a strong regulator for sport as a whole, there has to be uh, an opportunity 
to create that culture which says, if you're in this, you're in this on these bases, you know, these are the rules of the game. Can I, can I, um, final question then. I agree with you, I think. Uh, I'll reflect on it, but I think, I think, I think mate, what you said, what, well, let's put it this way, what you said makes a lot of sense. Um, and I totally agree with you on the separation of powers argument. And I th- again, I have these discussions internationally, and sometimes you forget, though, that we're in a slightly, we're in a fortunate in terms of our legal system for a start in the UK. We were yep. absolutely privileged to be in one of the best legal systems, if not the best legal system in the, the world. The best. I would, yeah. That's just for our Ameri- any American listeners out there. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. But uh, let's just say that for diplomatic purposes, arguably the best or one of the best legal systems. And, and you know, we've been very fortunate in that. Obviously, we've got a slightly checkered past as an industry, as a, yeah. sorry, as a, as a country, so we shouldn't speak too loudly right. about it, right? So, right. you know, it's not like we've been applied that principles across the world. However, we are very fortunate in our current position. Uh, we're in a different uh, sort of uh, uh, you know, global environment. Um, how do you deal, though, with the... If you look at sport as for what it is, whether it's an entertainment, whether it's a social tool, whether it's a political tool, keep on still of some form of political influence globally, uh, as well as domestically, it's a good tool, right? So to most people, how do you... And have you seen this in other sectors? How do you um, create that environment? If you look at WAD, and I agree with you, and David Howell was talking earlier, who, uh, who, um, who I, uh, I enjoy... Um, speaking to and I've interviewed him in the past and I've got a lot of respect for, for him and his approach is very honest when I've dealt with him anyway and I, I really respect that um, what I did with Wilder was incredible in terms of getting an international consensus but you know the, I'm a fan in, like, like with Cass in theory I'm a fan of, of all of them and I think they, you know, they do a, in terms of where we're at if you'd asked for that back when they were first started you go it's incredible what they're doing now however I think they could all be improved I'm sure people say the same thing about Lauren Sport for that matter <laughs> on a day-to-day basis. Uh, but they are political beasts to a certain degree in the sense of they are under political, some form of political influence you know, to a late, uh, lesser or greater extent. How do you, in this sort of evolutionary market, sorry, evolving market, it's called it, um, deal with that? So if you look at some, some you know, communist states or others where sport is still a huge big tool, even look at the, like, the sports motivation in the UK, UK sport, looking for return on investment. What does return on investment mean? Return on investment means medal halls because why that's significant for a brand GB. How do you then, and you would have seen this in the financial markets, how do you ad, uh, address that issue? Because no doubt that's quite a, particularly globally, quite a difficult thing to navigate. Um. No, it's just a question of how you look at the problem, frankly, because if you if you set yourself up to analyse this in terms of you know governments being dragged, shall we say, kicking and screaming mm-hmm. because this is a you know an object of subsidy, right? Instead of a source of revenue, then you're going to have a gigantic problem just because of the way that you set up the issue. Yeah. If you reflect on the fact that you know, the sports industry globally um, is something like one to two percent of GBP. Absolutely. Okay. It, you know, there's enough money out there um, to basically fund an environment that people really will want to watch, um, and that sponsors really will want to be associated with, uh, and that athletes really will want to participate mm. in uh, from all different kinds mm. of sports. And so, so the real question is. You know, starting at the end, you know, does that have to involve, um, you know, countries 
that, that you know, where we've had, you know, clear evidence, not suspicion, mm. but clear evidence of, you know, um, malpractice, to say. Mal yeah. Malpractices yeah. Of, of, of whatever kind. And, and I would argue the answer to that is no. Um, you, you know, people are interested in watching global sports. Um, and people are interested in watching you know, global competitions. Uh, and if and if people are interested in watching competitions that are you know participated in by people who compete fairly, uh, where the the the, mm. the outcome is uncertain. And if you create conditions for that to exist, that will be extremely powerful. So, so I think two things on that. I think that that I agree with you to the point of that. I was just doing a podcast yesterday on a webinar, actually. Sorry, on human rights. It was very popular. Like 140 people or so signed up to it. And there's, you know, absolute appetite and interest, and we've seen this in the business community, to start to be proactive in terms of recognising people's human rights, whether workers and uh, participants and other stakeholders, which is a positive, doesn't say it's perfect, but it's moving, because it's good business, it's good for business. Yeah. Let's be clear about it, it's better for everyone to create a better environment. Mm -hmm. in the, yeah. right. However, though, the one thing that I find curious around, I apologise, because you've you had no prep to this, I'm just dropping it on you, I appreciate it's the end of a long day. Okay. Um, the one of the statistics that I find fascinating is why do people watch sport? And I don't think anyone's got a really good handle on it at all because why are the motivations aren't there? So we talked about questions earlier. The questions are who are the demographics? Who can we market to? Who can we sell products to? Who can we sell advertising about? Who can we get more engaged? We don't actually have a really good handle, I don't think, empirical data on why people watch sport. So you think, if the, if the integrity mattered as much as the narrative would like you to believe in public domain. The World Championships, after the biggest ever doping scandal in sport, Russian doping scandal, would have had appalling attendance records at the World Champs. Instead, we had the largest ever attendance of World Championships, World Athletics Championships here in London. Yeah, okay, the response to that is easy. You don't know what the attendance would have been if there hadn't been this gigantic <laughs> yeah, doping true. scandal. But it was okay. sold out, I think. So, yeah. so I think, but, uh, but that doesn't that doesn't mean to say that there wasn't yeah, even more point. interest. Yeah, yeah, it's true, it's true. But I just think it, what it would mean, though, that, that, that we can presume the assumption that people care as much. Apparently, there is some. I was interviewing so the head of education, Andy, uh, about this, Andy Cunningham. Um, we're saying there is some empirical evidence that people have a lapse of time, so they care about integrity to a point. It's a bit like people buying um, fake goods when they're kids, for example, everyone wants the real McCoy, but if you can't afford the real McCoy, then you go, mm, okay, I'll buy a fake Ralph Lauren or I'll buy whatever to fit in with, if the point is, if you don't fit in. Uh, uh, not you personally, because that would be unlawful, obviously. Oh yeah, of so course, I wouldn't say me, yeah. no. no, no. <laughs> I could afford the real McCoy. Hi hypothetically. Um, <laughs> no, but what I'm saying is though, in the sense of, there wouldn't be that market, but my point is that, that, that people may be, in so, theory, opposed so, so to So here, here's my response to that. Um, you know, we, sitting here today in London, we look at things through a Western viewpoint. Um, in fact, you may say through an, an English or British viewpoint. Um, you, you know, not everybody views things the same way. Yes. Uh, and culturally, you know, we've seen some, you know, really quite stark expositions of the idea that, you know, people don't view things the same way. And I'm not going to name names and, you know, name particular federations mm. um, because that would be inappropriate. But the fact of the matter is, you know, we have, I think, um, to relax the assumption that everyone necessarily wants to compete fairly. Yeah. Okay? That assumption has to be relaxed. 
Absolutely. And then we look around and we see, okay, so who is actually really trying to compete fairly? Who wants to do the right thing? Who Who's self-selecting here? Mm. Okay. And also we have to define, as I go back to, we have to define though what is fairly. and Because yeah. culturally there's different meanings of well, what is fairly. Particularly so if you think like the Lance, even the Lance situation, everyone's doping, I'm going to dope. Russian situation, everyone's doping, I'm going to dope. That's, that they be- genuinely believe that is the... That so many people believe that is the case. And I argued a point with... Sorry to interrupt you. Um, uh, there's a difference between a professional and someone who's a bit more informal, let's say. Um, the, the, um, you know, if you look at, the, 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 for example, Rio Games, we were able to fund, the British Olympic Association were able to fund an external training centre in which all of our athletes could train at any time of day whenever we wanted. Loads of the other athletes, many of the other nations, didn't have the, the funding to do that. They had to queue up to train, had to go to unreasonable time to train. And we're very proud that we got the record medal hall. And I think rightly we're proud of that. But is that really fair? I'm not sure. But my point is that we need to at least acknowledge that as a part of the discussion of what is fair, because I can probably be guaranteed that Somalia, Kenya, other countries that don't have the same sort of funding that we do would be pretty pissed off with the fact that, athlete, that our athletes can go and train any time of day with the best facilities in the world, and they have to go and train in the Olympics uh, facilities with all the other competing nations. So we're never going to solve the problems of the world. Okay. Um, yes, we can. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so, uh, actually, I, I, let me correct that. Yeah. <laughs> Our objective should be to solve the problems of the world through sport. And so, what, what we're trying to do is, I, I think, be pragmatic and say, you know, yes, I take your point. If you come from a, a you know, a well-developed nation that, that is frankly rich, you know, relative to a poorer country, then that is going to show in terms of the, the, the facilities that are available, mm. for sure. It, it, does that make it unfair? I would argue it makes it unfortunate, but it doesn't make it unfair. And, and what I mean by that is that there's nothing inherently in, in, the, in the competition in the way that it's been set up that, he, that it does not allow effective participation by everyone. So, so how, how, this is the one bit I get to. Thanks for entertaining my question on this. But this is the point I, that, that, that I get to, um, is that I study sports science. So why is it fair for some athletes to be able to afford to take four or 5,000 calories in various supplements, whereas others it's not? So we don't allow doping. So you can't take one, say there's a magic cure, right? You can take an injection, which there are, which can end up with equal to the same performance, or you can take certain nutritional supplements that will collectively, if you take a concoction of these supplements, it will elevate your testosterone levels, it will elevate certain characteristics, right? And we we arbitrarily say that is fair, but there is an economic, and this is my point about fairness, what is fairness? And I think if we were to have an honest discussion about what is fair, we'd end up with a more consistent and probably a reduced and more effective regulatory framework as opposed to the, the, the convoluted and World Anti-Doping Code and prohibited list where scientists, lawyers can't agree, the world's leading lawyers and scientists can't agree what's on there. And therefore, from a compliance perspective, I'm sure you've probably seen this, I'm making an assumption though, but uh, you know, I guess, let me rephrase it rather than you know, forcing you into a, you know, to agree with me. But um, in, your, in the other areas you've worked in, for, to get greater compliance, surely you need clearer rules that people can follow and adhere to? Um, okay, so there are a few things you've said there. Um, <laughs> so, Consu- Being you, concise is not one of my strong points. You don't <laughs> necessarily need clearer rules. Okay, Some of these transgressions are deliberate. Hmm. They're, 
frankly fraudulent. They would probably be treated in criminal, as criminal offences in some uh, aspects. Uh, and so there's nothing that actually inherently in the compliance system that's broken, but it's just simply not enforced. So, so in other words, the efforts that are, are undertaken to ensure that people you know, can't engage in the transgressions are not undertaken because there's insufficient resource so that you don't actually get there. Your problem that you're talking about with um, um, you know, being unable to afford, shall we say, medication or nutritional supplements and so on, we, we can't fix that, uh, unfortunately, through um, spot because that's not even, I would suggest, the right entry point because um, a, a lot of exclusion in sport takes place at a much earlier age. Mm. And so when, when you look at, let's say, you know, your average community, you know, potential athlete, can they, you know, become the next, you know, famous footballer? Mm. Yes, because you just need a football and some mates and if you're good and you're you can get spotted. Can you become the next, you know, fencer? You know, how are you going to get into that? Where's the access point? Can you become the next triathlete? If you don't have the bike, you don't mm. have access to a pool. All of these things cost yeah. money. Yeah, absolutely. And so, actually, the you know, for those people who um, are, shall we say, prevented from participating at an early age. And, and for, you know, that's where we should be focusing resources. So, so let's take it as a market force. And I'm sorry, I was fascinated by the other stuff that you do as much as for this reason, for this comparison. I think it's super interesting. But from a market perspective, if you're looking, say, from a European Commission perspective, and you think, you know, having a competitive market is good, right? Having, not have, having markets where monopolies don't exist is good, right, for, for, for everyone, for all the actors, right? Uh, hang on. Let's, let's, let's straighten one thing out. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with a monopoly, okay? Monopolies right. are okay. You just must not abuse a monopoly position. Right, okay, okay so it's okay. great if you've competed, if you've, if you've won your monopoly position fairly and squarely, that's okay. Thank you, thank you. No, that's a good point. No, it's a really good point, thanks. <laughs> no, it's a very helpful. No, you're right. And so, but in that though, you yeah, you want to make sure that there's healthy competition, right? And that's it. so um, forevermore, you're not just wedded into that position for, for just being first, at, first in, in the market, for example. So in a sports environment, there are leverages in competition law to make sure that it creates that healthy environment, as you referred to. So if we're looking to the global sports world, then what models could be adopted in terms of either creating environments that where it encourages in terms of development funds, in terms of um, whether there's fines, whether there's redistribution of funds, whether there's certain provisions in place in which certain people can't do certain things over in broadcasting. For example, you know, the, the whole thing about Premier League success was partly because of the... You know, the competition law claim against Sky, which then and Premier League, which meant that they, actually the Premier League won massively from that, and probably so did Sky. Yeah, I, I think um, it's an interesting. I mean, the broadcasting situation is quite an interesting one because uh, there have been quite a few studies showing, in fact, that the competition authorities' intervention has yielded a suboptimal outcome oh, right. you know, over over decades, and that in fact it's flawed intervention. Um, so that that's not you know it's not necessarily the case that creating competition necessarily yields the right outcome. So, so what, what's the, the, the way that that works was, I don't know, we're slightly getting off topic no, here. No, it's brilliant. I'm really enjoying you know, it anyway. The, the I'm sorry for listeners who yeah. are going, I didn't sign up for this. The, the I, I think it's fascinating. The, the idea was that, of course, in order to uh, avoid a sort of winner-takes-all, 
um, you would you know parcel up the bids into certain you know sectors and you know different kinds of groups and so on and then you'd bid you know you'd put them out yeah. separately um, but but actually there, there's been quite a, a lot of analysis that suggests that in fact the total cost to the consumer was greater okay than would have been the case if you'd yeah. had a single monopoly winner because actually um, unlike in the winner takes all situation which you could have at least conceivably mm. had a price cap with a single price for, you access either BT or Sky or whoever's mm -hmm. actually won the entirety. Mm -hmm. You have to then subscribe for different yeah. products, and there's uh, you know a bundling that goes cost, on, yeah, and, and so actually because the distribution cost, cost per, per uh, operator yeah, goes exactly up. Exactly yeah. right. That's that's right. So you have actually what's you know, inefficient competition, and so it, it, it's simply not true to say that more competition is necessarily a good thing. Um, ordinarily, you would think so. We're, I need, we're going to pick this up on another time because I'm conscious of time. Yeah. You've already given up a lot of time. I haven't stopped that's you from networking and, okay. and enjoy, enjoying anything, okay. so I'll let you it's go and have a glass of wine. Um, super interesting. We should pick up on the broadcasting uh, separately offline. That is, a, uh, I think, a narrative that we... Well, maybe other people in the media rights market, in the sports or market, I don't think there's much of that narrative taking place, and particularly with the individuals I've spoken to. So uh, I'd love to be up with you. Thank you for entertaining my questions. Pleasure. I know we didn't do any prep for this, so we just dropped in. It was really enlightening, super interesting, gave me a lot to think about. And, uh, yeah, thanks a lot. Great. And thanks my to pleasure. Sports Resolution for putting on a great event. Yes, absolutely. Thanks to Sports Resolution.